Thank you, Nicole. Happy Palm Sunday, church. Doesn't worship good this morning. If you're a fan of the Harry Potter series, as I am, uh, you know that as, uh, as the story progresses, it gets increasingly darker and darker as it climaxes toward, toward the end. Um, book one is light, and it's fun. Uh, book two gets a little bit darker. By, by book four, this storyline is, is getting much more intense. And by book six and seven, it, is, it has gotten outright dark. I mean, it, so this, the story of Harry Potter is just, it's, it's getting increasingly darker and darker and darker. And the story of Jesus is, is the same. And in fact, some have pointed out that uh, perhaps J.K. Rowling was, was leaning on uh, certain biblical themes uh, as she wrote the Harry Potter series. And in the story of Jesus told by Matthew, chapter 26 is the beginning of Deathly Hollows. This is the time of Jesus' death drawing near. Though he's been repeatedly warning the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, it hasn't quite clicked with them Yet what Jesus is saying and where that is leading. But as, as John's gospel puts it, the hour has come. It has been drawing near, it's been drawing near, it's been drawing near. But now suddenly the hour has come and Jesus knows it. He will make it clear to them in this passage, telling his disciples once again, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Calvary draws nigh. At this point in time, there is a conspiracy among the Jewish leaders, the elders and the scribes, the high priests, to arrest Jesus and to kill him. These Jewish leaders don't like Jesus because they see him as a threat. He's said and done some things that don't sit well with them. Frankly, Jesus has ticked them off. He's, he's rebuked them for their hypocrisy calling them whitewashed tombs and blind guides. And they're ready to get rid of this guy. In just two more days, Jesus will ride into town on a donkey with the crowds crying out, Hosanna, son of David. And that's Messiah talk. And they certainly won't like that. Jesus is not going to be their Messiah. Jesus, after riding into town on a donkey, which was a symbol of of being a king, he'll walk into the temple and he'll begin to turn over tables, calling out those who were exploiting the festival as a way to make money, rebuking the religion of the day. But here at the beginning of Matthew 26, it's two days before these events. It's on the dawn of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a huge Jewish holiday. More than 100,000 pilgrims would be making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. There would be tents that would be erecting all the way around the city as families arrived for the festival. The first, the first day of the feast was called Passover, which reminded Israel specifically how uh, the Lord had spared the firstborn son in every home in Israel, but how he had taken the life of every firstborn son in Egypt who was not under the, the blood of the slain lamb. God had told his people to take 
take a lamb to slaughter it and to place the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their home. And every, every home who had the door, had the blood on the doorpost was spared. But every family that was not under the blood was not spared. And this is how, this is the event that eventually precipitated the exodus. And so to celebrate Passover, each family would gather to Jerusalem and they would slaughter a lamb once again. So I want you to imagine how many lambs there were in Jerusalem for this festival. You can hear the baying of sheep everywhere. Commentator David Garland compares the atmosphere in and around Jerusalem during this time to what it would be like at a state fair, minus the funnel cakes, of course. You can imagine it. You can smell it. You can smell the hay. You can smell the sheep. You can hear it. It was a little quieter where Jesus and his disciples were this evening. They're they're in Bethany, a village about two miles away outside of Jerusalem in the home of a man named Simon. And we know that Jesus' friend Lazarus, who Jesus had raised to life after being dead four days, lived in Bethany. And in fact, we learn from John's account of this same story that Lazarus is in Simon's house this evening with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew calls this man named Simon, Simon the leper, which is an unfortunate nickname, except that we presume he's no longer a leper because if he still had leprosy, nobody would come to his home. And so we, I think it's fair to assume that Jesus had perhaps healed Simon of his leprosy. This is Simon the healed leper. Imagine the stories being shared that night between Lazarus and Simon and the disciples. Lazarus, what was it like to be dead four days and then for Jesus to call you back? Simon, what was it like to be covered in a disease and for the Lord to instantaneously heal you? And of course, the disciples couldn't be outdone. They had to pipe in and and to begin to share the the miracles that they had been privy to and had been a part of in their ministry with Jesus. Wouldn't it it have been fun to be a fly on the wall that night just to hear these people talk, their their firsthand accounts of, of the power of Jesus? And as they recline at table and as they talk, we're told that suddenly this woman begins to approach Jesus. From John's account of the story, we know that this woman is Mary, Lazarus's sister. And as Mary begins to make her way to Jesus, you notice that she is carrying this, this jar, this alabaster jar. It looks like some sort of very expensive perfume. What is she doing with a flask of Perfume. This was not an everyday item. This is not something that you would just normally see in a, in a regular dinner setting. It's a, it's a half liter of pure nard, which was a precious anointing oil that came from, from India. And, and Mark tells us that, she, that as she approaches Jesus, she, she took the flask and she broke it. I want you to imagine the fragrant smell that suddenly wafted through the air of that room. Have you ever dropped a bottle of cologne before? I have. Or maybe you just walked past a 12-year-old who got a hold of a can of Axe body spray. (laughs) Right, like two squirts is nice. A whole can is awful. 
The smell of this perfume, the, the, the jar being broken, would have, would, have, would have overwhelmed the room that they were in. This flask of nard perfume was, was very likely a family heirloom that was, that was passed down to Mary. It was something that was, frankly, irreplaceable. It was one of a kind. The, this was extremely rare and valuable. So for Mary to take it and to decisively crack it open is a scandalous move. All eyes are now on her as she comes near to Jesus and begins to pour this precious oil over the head of Jesus. I want you to imagine it running from his head down his hair onto his robe. I want you to see it dripping from his robe down onto the bench that Jesus is sitting on, down onto the floor. And then Mary kneels and she begins to pour more of this ointment on the feet of Jesus. She has no intentions of saving any of the perfume for later. She's going to use the whole bottle on Jesus right now. All of it. It was typically a servant's role to wash feet, to clean the feet of guests who came into someone else's house. And yet here is Mary, a fellow guest, anointing and washing Jesus' feet. Not only so, but she's washing Jesus' feet with this costly perfume. In today's term, this would be like using Louis Vuitton perfume as a shoe freshener, right? That's what Dr. Scholl's is for, not the finest perfume you own. When she's finished pouring out the bottle on Jesus, Mary makes another surprising move. She then reaches up and, and lets her hair down and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. That this is a demonstration of radical humility and love. One commentator noted that Jewish women almost never let their hair down in public. And so this action of Mary is one of intense personal devotion to Christ. It's, it's similar to, to what we find in the Old Testament when King David is dancing in his undergarments before the Lord. What the scriptures call undignified worship. This is unrestrained devotion. This is unrestrained worship of Jesus. Now, to be clear, Mary's actions here are not romantically motivated. This is just radical reverence. And this entire scene is, is stunning. If you would have been there that night, you would have been stunned. The, the action immediately elicits various responses. I want you to imagine the looks on people's faces while this is happening. There, some are aghast, literally mouths gaped open. Their eyes have gotten huge, shocked at this drastic demonstration. Some become indignant, Matthew tells us. To them, this is a hasty and impractical decision that Mary has made. At least one person in the room walks completely away from Jesus after this moment. And then there's Mary. After she's finished this move of worship, she sits quietly at the master's feet. 
You know, it's interesting. Mary is mentioned by name three times in the Gospels. And do you know that in, in all three instances where Mary is mentioned by name, do you know where you find her? You find her sitting at the feet of Jesus. So I wonder where in the room you would find yourself if you would have been there that night. What would have been your reaction to this moment? Which reaction, which gesture best describes your heart? Which best depicts your posture toward Jesus? That's the question I want us to consider this morning for a few minutes on this Palm Sunday. I want each of us to consider together your posture toward the Prince of Peace. Your posture towards the Prince of Peace. We'll notice three postures toward Jesus from our passage. And the first posture I want to draw our attention to is the posture of betrayal. The posture of betrayal. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. And said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, if you've grown up in the church, and even if you haven't, you're likely acquainted with the fact that Judas Iscariot was the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Sometimes we even use the the name Judas as a way to call someone a traitor. We'll say things like, don't be a Judas. I think we're so familiar with his betrayal at this point that the scandal of it is lost on us. It's sort of like in The Empire Strikes Back when, when it's revealed that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, right? Like, and by the way, did you know the line is not Luke, I am your father? It's no, I am your father. A bit of Star Wars trivia for you. If you're unfamiliar with Star Wars, um, you find out in the original second movie... There's countless movies at this point. But in the original second movie that that Darth Vader, the the, the arch nemesis of the good guys, is actually the father of Luke Skywalker, the hero, the protagonist of the story. And if you were unfamiliar with the story, watching this second movie, those five words would be staggering. But once you've seen the movie, once you know the storyline, you know it's coming. You're not stunned by it. And I think that's how we tend to treat Judas. We forget that Judas was one of the original 12 that walked and did life with Jesus. That he was one of the few. We read in Mark's gospel in the third chapter that Jesus chose those whom he wanted to be with him. Judas was one of the 12 that Jesus chose to be with him. Judas heard Jesus preach publicly. But not only so, the disciples were given the private lessons. Judas is one of the few that got to go back with Jesus in private and to hear Jesus give him the private lessons. He had witnessed Jesus perform many miracles. In fact, Judas's hands were one of the 12 sets of hands that held the bread that Jesus had taken and blessed and broken and put in the hands of the disciples who then put it in the hands of the crowd that fed a multitude. Judas had actually participated in miracles. He had been sent out by Jesus, I'm sorry. He had been sent out by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom and to perform mighty acts. Judas had been put in a position of incredible privilege and yet for him... Proximity to Jesus did not equate with intimacy with Jesus. 
It did not yield loyalty to Jesus. See, you can be near the work of Christ and still not love him. Proximity is no indicator of authenticity. Though Judas was given a front row seat to the glory of Christ, in the end, he walks away and betrays his rabbi. Now, it appears that Judas finally realizes in this moment that being part of Jesus' inner posse wasn't necessarily going to yield what he had hoped. See, Judas was a greedy man. In fact, from John's account of this same story, we, we learn that it is Judas who is one of the leaders of indignance. He's, he's indignant about this moment, about this alabaster jar being broken and used up instead of being sold. And John gives us the commentary that he wasn't upset because he cared about the poor, but because he would regularly steal from the disciples' money purse. Judas was greedy, and this was a missed opportunity. But more than that, up until now it seems, that Judas perhaps thought that by sticking close to Jesus, it was going to manifest in him eventually getting earthly riches and power. And now he's beginning to realize that this may not be the case. And so with this realization, Jesus immediately becomes expendable to Judas. It's clear now that Judas never really actually loved Jesus. He loved money and his aim was to exploit Jesus. And when he comes to this conclusion that Jesus isn't going to serve his selfish end, he abandons Jesus for what he loves most. And we're reminded of Jesus' own words when he said, you cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible to serve God and something else because you'll end up being devoted to the one and despising the other. Judas illustrates this for us, and he serves as a warning to all of us. Proximity and prior ministry are not promise of perseverance. The book of Hebrews is full of warnings to the church about those who partake in spiritual experiences but in the end abandon Christ. And the question we must all concern ourselves with is the nature of our affections for Jesus. Here's the question. Do you truly love him? Is Jesus your treasure or is Christianity a means to an end? Pastor Tony Marita warns us that it is possible to be very religious and actually very wicked. That it's possible to be an insider in a church, but in the end, end up an outsider to the kingdom. In fact, one of the major themes that we find in the Gospels is that often those who we might deem insiders are really outsiders. And those who we might point to and say, man, they're an outsider, they end up being insiders. Judas was a disciple, at least externally, but he was not truly a devoted follower of Christ. He was not truly a lover of Jesus. Appearances are not always reality. But something else we see here is that in the end, true colors will manifest. Judas leaves this dinner party, headed for the chief priest and the Jewish leaders to ask them how much they will give in exchange for him handing Jesus over to them. And they offer Judas 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. 
is worth the equivalent of about $200 in today's terms. A striking contrast to the value of that alabaster jar. But more significantly, in the Old Testament, what we discover is that 30 shekels was the restitution price in the law for a slave that was accidentally killed. In other words, Judas betrayed Jesus for the price of a slave. So here is a woman willing to give up her most treasured possession in an act of devotion to Jesus. And here is Judas betraying his rabbi for the price of a slave. And now it's easy for us to look at this and say, what a dumb decision. But I would exhort us to take time to consider the things that we often betray Jesus for ourselves. Like 30 minutes of secret internet pleasure. Or $30 on a bottle of drunken debauchery. Or 30 years of bowing down to the idol of work. We're often more like Judas than we want to admit. And the truth is that even if the price had been three million pieces of silver, it would not have been a wise decision because truly there is no such thing as a good trade if it requires giving up Christ. What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a person give in exchange for his soul? There is nothing on earth worth more than Jesus. And there is nothing more foolish than betraying him. And so Judas forces us to consider our posture toward the master and to ask, is there anything I would be willing to sell out Jesus for? I want to encourage you to be careful about answering that question too quickly. Maybe linger on that thought this week. But there were others in the room that evening besides Judas. We notice a second posture toward Jesus in this passage, which is the posture of moderation. The posture of moderation. Verse 7, read it with me. It says, A woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? While the Apostle John focuses in on on Judas and his story and calls him out, Matthew points out that there were others in the room indignant with Judas, that this wasn't just Judas, that several of the disciples were indignant, that they reacted negatively. Now, they may not have all shared Judas's greedy motivation, and they certainly didn't follow him out the door that evening. No, they stayed, they stayed close to Jesus. But they at least agreed with Judas that, that Mary's actions seemed over the top. They seemed wasteful. And so the language in the text is that they began to scold her. They're going to give Mary a lecture. Mary, this was a waste. You could have done other things with this jar. She could have sold this perfume and used the proceeds to care for the poor. She could have held a silent auction or sold it on eBay. 
And the proceeds could have gone to Urban Purpose or the Salvation Army. She at least could have gently uncorked the jar and dabbed the perfume on Jesus instead of cracking it open and pouring the whole thing out. Why this waste? And that's how many of us are postured toward Jesus. We like Jesus. But our worship of him is more a dab than it is a generous pouring out. Now, I hate to meddle, but one way that we see this crystal clear is in how some of us give financially to the church and to the kingdom. And the approach we take with our money is indicative of the rest of our lives. Just a dab. Some of us are what we might call Downton Abbey Christians. Our affection for Jesus is demonstrated in ways that are very socially acceptable. We would never want to be misconstrued as radical or over the top. We like to keep our religion civil. Nothing that would draw too much attention or ruffle feathers. Nothing that would get us into trouble. We, we want to keep things in between the lines. One way of looking at this is to say that some of us embrace Christianity because we find it useful. Christianity is, is really about pragmatics. It's good in moderation. We, we like the ethics it brings. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others. Care for the poor. It's a way for us to feel good about ourselves. We can volunteer at that soup kitchen. We can give to Compassion Internationals, and we can pat ourselves on the back. Jesus' words in verse 11 cut the legs out from underneath this kind of, of thinking. These are stunning words. The same Jesus that taught us to love our neighbor and to care for the poor says in verse 11, you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Jesus pushes back on this notion that Mary's actions are a waste. He pushes back on this moderate approach to Christianity, this pragmatic approach. And while caring for the poor is important, Jesus says that there is something more important. He, he says that there is something more central, which is to care for Jesus himself. He places himself at the heart of religion. It's not enough to like Christianity for its practicality or its teachings or its effect on society. He says you must embrace Christianity for Christ's sake. You don't become a Christian fundamentally because it's practical to be one. Truthfully, that's, that's honestly why a lot of people engage in Christianity in Birmingham. There are certain advantages that come with identifying as a Christian. In, in our setting, in our culture, you kind of need to be a Christian for certain settings. And there certainly is a lot of positive societal impact that flows from Christianity. Don't get me wrong. The Christian worldview is the best. It is, it is the way, it is the path to human flourishing. But you don't become a Christian because it's convenient or useful. You become a Christian because you love Jesus. Jesus calls us to something more, something deeper, which is what we see in Mary. If you want an example of the kind of posture that Jesus is after, it's this posture of radical devotion. It's, it's Mary's posture, which is a posture of worship. Look at verse 10. He says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And by pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
Jesus, in this instant, memorializes this woman's actions. And he says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of here. What we are doing this morning is fulfilling Jesus' promise to Mary. We're retelling what she has done and paying tribute to her. We're living in a moment right now in which there are increasing numbers of women being portrayed as superheroes in Hollywood that are getting lead roles in films. There are more role models in Hollywood and in Washington than there have ever been. And I, for one, am thankful for that. I think that's a good thing. But church, listen to me. As many female role models as there are, there are none greater than Mary. Parents, if you're looking for a good role model for your daughters and sons, tell them about Mary. She demonstrates to, to everyone in that room that night, she demonstrates to every one of us the kind of devotion that Jesus is after. Mary is a model disciple. In fact, what's interesting, this is especially true in the Gospel of Mark, is that Mark is highlighting the, 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 the exemplary model that women set in the Gospels. It's the Syrophoenician's faith. That Gentile woman's faith that sets the bar. It's the woman with the blood issue that shows us what faith is to be like. And now here it's Mary that shows us what discipleship is truly all about. Jesus points to her as an example for us to follow. He, he calls her action noble. I think the ESV gets it better when it translates it beautiful. What Mary did for Jesus is beautiful because Mary gave her everything to Jesus. This alabaster jar that Mary took and broke and poured out was probably her emergency fund. If things got bad, she could sell this jar and live off it. It was worth $40,000 equivalent to today's money. 300 denarii. And what this means is that Mary gave her entire future to Jesus. Her worship led her to place her life, her hopes, her dreams on Jesus. This is sacrificial worship. Tony Marita observes that the world has no problems with religion in moderation. We're surrounded with this kind of religion. But Jesus here calls us to something deeper. Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies, your whole lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Offer your entire life as sacrifice and as worship unto God. What Mary did is what one pastor calls the transforming effect of the gospel. It is the difference that the gospel makes. See, when we truly understand Jesus for who he is, we cease to see him as useful and we begin to see him as beautiful. And when Jesus becomes beautiful to us, it no longer seems like a waste to sacrificially pour out our lives in worship unto him. Jesus once said it this way. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden, buried in a field that a man found 
and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he owns so he can buy that field. Jesus is the treasure in that parable, by the way. And what he's saying is when you truly discover the worth of me, when you see me as a treasure, you're willing to go sell everything so that you can obtain me. He's worth our radical devotion. Now, I'm sure there were some there that evening that sneered at Mary. They were probably saying things under their breath. Like, who does she think she is? She's just doing this to draw attention to herself. Mary didn't care. Because her love for Jesus liberated her from the thoughts and opinions of everyone else. I wonder if you've been liberated to love Jesus like that. See, the love of Jesus is liberating. Because suddenly the opinions of man, the thoughts of man, the ways of the world... They have no shackles on you. They have no hold on you. When you love Jesus with radical devotion, it might bring criticism. In fact, it probably will. It's because loving Jesus sacrificially defies worldly wisdom, and it holds up a mirror to religious mediocrity. You ever been around somebody that's just zealous for the Lord? It's convicting. But notice who defends Mary. Notice who stands with Mary. Jesus says, leave her alone. Quit bothering her. He says that what Mary has done is prepare him for his impending death and burial. She has anointed the king. In the words of Psalm 2, she has paid homage. She has kissed the son. And the words of that psalm conclude, happy are all who take refuge in him. And so this Palm Sunday, I just wonder what is your posture toward the prince. You can reject him. You can attempt to use him. Or you can bow down before him and worship him as your king. But only one of these will truly lead to life and joy. Let's pray together.